Welcome to Central Assembly's podcast. Here's a message from our lead pastor, Kurt Jenkins. We pray this message speaks to you. We're going to get right into it from Ephesians chapter 6, talking about the sword of the Spirit today. You can open that up to your Bible if you want to. If not, the verses will be on the screen. We've been plowing through for five previous weeks, going through each item that Paul talked about in Ephesians chapter 6, about the spiritual war that we are all in, each one of us. None of us are exempt from it, but we've all been empowered to win. Amen? So Paul... uh, In a portion of this chapter, starting at verse 10, says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. I want you to know, God will never give a command in Scripture that there is not grace to enable you to fulfill it. You should say amen. Amen. He's never going to tell you. Jesus had, you know, there's different teachings on that Jesus had 50 different commands throughout throughout his life. He's never going to command something that the Holy Spirit will not enable you by his grace to fulfill. So if if you're thinking, well, I don't feel strong at all and I don't feel his mighty power, ask for the grace to receive it. Ask for the Holy Spirit to speak to you, to bring you into a different experience in life that you will come into an experiential experience portion of your life where you're seeing this happen. So this is a command, be strong in the Lord. It's not a suggestion. And in his mighty power, put on the full armor of God. Say full, full Full armor of God so that you could take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rollers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces and of evil in the heavenly realms. We've been talking about this. It's an invisible war. We're fighting against uh, a spiritual realm that we cannot see. It's not against people who we don't care for, who frustrate us or who get on our nerves. It's against the devil and his demons. So we need to fight the proper way with the tools that the Lord's given us. Verse 13, therefore put on the full armor of God. So when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. It says, take the helmet of salvation, which we talked about last week, and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. If you look at this, it's interesting because he's talking about you know, the belt of truth. So he gives one inclination of what that belt stands for, the breastplate of righteousness, your feet shod with what? Readiness that comes from something, the gospel of peace, the shield of faith. But I like even how he describes, it's the sword of the spirit, same type of title, but then he's bringing further clarity to what this is. It is the word of God. So it's a a greater explanation other than all the pieces of of the um, armor of God of what this one is, and it's the word of God. So when I think about a, a, a soldier's, sword, I think of something nice and big like this. It is nice. I think about people in war and a a, a soldier like this being able to stay far away from an enemy 
and wielding this thing. I'm gonna watch what I'm doing. I'm very careful, front row. I told one of the youth I was gonna do one of those tricks where you throw it up and then you catch it, but I'm not gonna do that. <clears throat> but when you do think about this, you think, you think about keep the enemy as far away as possible, be able to, to, to wield the sword. You could take off his head with this thing. You could stab him when he's far away. But this thing is heavy, it's long, and it's clunky. When I used to think about the sword of the spirit, I would always think about something this long. Uh, it's a beautiful weapon. But as I studied the sword of the spirit and what the Roman soldiers actually used, it was more like this. Maybe a little bit longer, maybe four or six inches longer. This is the closest I could find. What this, the purpose was for was not riding on a horse and keeping your enemy at bay. This sword was used when the enemy got so close that you could hear his voice. You could probably hear his whisper. You could probably feel his breath on your face. This was used for hand-to-hand combat, and it was to be used for the purpose. It was also a double, it was a double-edged sword. It was used to thrust into the body of the enemy once he had already invaded your personal space. The implications of this is huge. <clears throat> when I think of the sword of the spirit, I'm gonna continue to think about something nice and long and sharp and shiny. <laughs> but the intended use is this. Your enemy has gotten into your personal space. You could feel him. You could feel the breath. You can hear his whisper. And now it's time to attack a different way. The shield isn't gonna stop this time. The helmet might've already have gotten knocked off because it's hand-to-hand battle. This is the sword that Paul is talking about of how we can, the illustration that the church would have known when they read this. They wouldn't have thought of this they would have thought of this. And they would have said, this has to be a powerful weapon. So the weapon that he's given us obviously is not a physical sword. It's the word of God. When we use this sword, when we use the word regularly, and when we use it accurately, it will bring victory in our life. It's guaranteed. This isn't something that you could try for 30 days and you know, money back. This is guaranteed. When you learn to use the word of God in your life, when attack comes, you will see victory. Just two side notes before we move forward. When Paul was writing this in the book of Ephesians, when when, when we see sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, we think of this book. This book was not around whenever Paul was writing this. Paul was still writing these letters to the different churches. So the New Testament was not put together yet, and the Old Testament wasn't called the Old Testament. When we think of what Paul was talking about in that time, you need to think of only the Old Testament books. They were broken up really into three different categories. The first was the Torah or the Pentateuch. It was the first five books of the Bible. And then there was the books of the prophets that were put together. And there was a collection of other writings such as Psalms, Proverbs, Job, and so on that were hard to categorize. Within these three collections, they were able to have this documentation at this time but they didn't have any of the New Testament. However, the New Testament verifies everything that the Old Testament led up to. It talks about the covenant that we're in today. So when we read the word of God, this applies to all of this in our lives. But in context, it's important to understand he's just talking about what we would now call the Old Testament. All right? One other side note, if you look at Ephesians 6 compared to John 1, 1, there should be a slide up there. There's a difference here because John, right at the beginning, John calls or refers to Jesus as the word. 
Now, if you see here in Ephesians, Paul's saying the sword of the spirit is the word of God. That's a lowercase w. That's the written word, all right? In John, where it says the word, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. The word was God. This is Jesus. Jesus is the capital W word. So if we think about the difference, they work in tandem. But if you think about the difference, the lowercase w is the written word. It's what we hold. It's called the Holy Bible, the scriptures, and so on. When we think of Jesus, he's the capital W. He's the breathing word. When he, when he talks, God's talking. Now we should learn to read this as if when we're reading the words on this page, God is also talking. It's just a different form of communication. So the lowercase word is the written word of God communicating to us. The capital W word is Jesus. And when he spoke and everything he did, it was as if the father was walking on the earth himself. Amen. Amen. Jesus even said in John 6, 63, the spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I've spoken to you, they are full of the spirit and life. So you would do yourself well if you read the red words of Jesus all throughout the New Testament. Watch the patterns of how he spoke, what he said, and what he didn't say, how he operated and how he acted and how he didn't operate and how he didn't act. And if we take that as an example, we will begin to model ourselves through this word by the word. Amen? So what we wanna do, we wanna get to a place where we are speaking the lowercase word in the authority of the capital word, right? And then we'll actually be able to see victory in these areas. See, the devil has proof of both. He understands the written word. He knows what the written word is. And he also knows who the living, breathing word is. So when we come and we say to the enemy in the spirit realm, when we're under attack and we declare this written word, we're saying, listen, we have proof of the covenant that we are right with God, that we're on the winning side. But not only do we have proof, we're coming in the authority in the delegated authority of the word, of the name of Jesus, when we use both of those things in tandem, the devil cannot stand against us. It's James 4 being fleshed out. We're surrendering ourselves to God. Now he's the ruler and commander. He's given us the covenant. He's given us authority by the name of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So when we go and we attack and we resist the enemy, he must flee. He has to flee. Sometimes we think when our circumstances don't change that he hasn't, he hasn't fled. That's not true. That's not true at all. There's a big difference between your circumstances being wrong and the enemy actually attacking your soul. Right? So you submit to God. You resist the enemy through the sword of the spirit, the word of God in the authority of Jesus and the word saying the devil will flee. So you have to believe that by faith that he has fled when you stand against him. And then in time, your circumstances will begin to flesh out. So what is the sword of the spirit? What is the word of God? Second Timothy, I just wanna give you a few different examples from scripture here. Second Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness 
so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I mean, those two verses are so power packed with what the word is. We could stay there, but we're not going to. But if you look, if you, if you look just at the, the, these couple of verses for a moment, this word God breathed, it, is, it, it, it means every word written in the Bible, in scriptures is inspired by God. So as these men were sitting down, yes, they were writing letters to individuals or to the churches, or yes, they were prophesying things and their their prophecies were being recorded throughout the Old Testament. Yes, there was history being recorded. But we as Christians believe that every word in that book was inspired by God. So picture as these men are writing or penning these words that God is breathing upon their soul as they write. Look at these four things that it lists here. God's word teaches you. So it's teaching you about the covenant that you're in. It's teaching you about his love. It's teaching you about who Jesus was and how he walked this earth and how we can live a life following him. It's teaching us about his grace. It's teaching us about end times. It's teaching us from the beginning all the way to the end. But his word also rebukes us. Nobody likes to hear that. The Lord showed me, the Lord reminded me that it is, you know, the word rebuke is never a pleasing word. But he said, being rebuked by his word in your private time is much easier than needing to be rebuked by a family member, a friend, or a church leader if that sin comes into the public realm. So we should look at this word and when it begins to teach us and when the Lord begins to rebuke us, when you see something in here and you're like, oh my goodness, Like I am not living anywhere up to this or my beliefs were so off base. It's not even about your behavior at times. It's about your belief system and who you believe you are in him. Let it rebuke you. Let it cut you deep and change you in your private time so you can pour out the right things in the public time. Amen? The Bible said, or uh, in this verse, it says that it also corrects you. That word correction is like if you're getting off path if a child was walking down the wrong path in the woods and the parent, like a little kid, and the parent would pick them up and put them on the right path, there's a correction going on, all right? It's not so much a punishment as it is, okay, you're doing something wrong. You may not even be aware of it, but I'm correcting your path. So in scripture, when you're reading scripture and you're reading through something and, and like the aha moment comes, you say, oh my goodness, I never saw that this way. I always believed the Lord operated like this and now the word's saying something different. That is correcting your theology that will eventually correct your lifestyle. <clears throat> and the fourth one is training. In what? Training in what? Righteousness. So we talked about this already with the breastplate of righteousness, that you are righteous first and foremost by your position in Christ. So you can stand righteous before God, but you're also, there's commands in scripture and there's empowerment by the spirit to live a righteous life. So out of your position of righteousness, you learn to live righteously. The best example I can give of how scripture trains you for righteousness is this. When a prince is born or a princess is born, a future king or a future queen, as they're being raised, there is a very specific training that happens for them to be able to be royalty, for them to live up to their royal name. That's what the word does for you. It reminds you, first of all, you are royalty, you are righteous, you are chosen by God, and now it tutors you in the ways of royalty. It's training you in the righteousness that you already have by title. You with me? 
All of this happens, it says, so you can be thoroughly equipped, not semi-equipped, not a little bit equipped, but thoroughly equipped for every single good work that God has for you. So it's amazing. We, sometimes we do. We spend like seasons of our life. I don't know what God's will is for my life. I don't know where he's taking me. I don't know what to do. I'm frustrated. My question is this. Are you in the word every single day then? Are you spending enough time? Do you set other things aside? Like DVR your favorite show and put it off for a few months. Seriously, like let's get this right. If we actually believe that this word will teach us, will rebuke us, will correct us, and will train us so that we will be ready and equipped for every good work that he has. Picture yourself standing before the Father and him saying, you have fulfilled the fullness of the destiny that I've had for you. The only way that that's going to happen is if you're in this word. You're sharpening your sword, preparing yourself, letting it and him equip you at the same time for the good works that he has for you. Hebrews 4, 12, another aspect of the word. It says, for the word of God, look at it, it's, it's lowercase w, so we're talking about the written word here. The word of God is alive and active. Isn't that interesting? The words that you read on these pages, though they are printed, though they are not the original document, they've been printed thousands and thousands upon times. This written word is alive and active. Why? How? Because it's God-breathed. As you read it, God's breathing on it all over again as you're reading these words. So they should become alive and active in your life too. It says it's sharper than any double-edged sword. It's interesting. Roman soldiers in Ephesians have a double-edged sword. And Paul's saying this is, this sword of the Spirit is the word. And now in Hebrews the author is saying, this word is sharper than any double-edged sword. It says it penetrates even to the dividing of the soul and the spirit. Joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. So what's happening, the Holy Spirit is breathing upon these words as we read it. And the intention is that a, this, this double-edged comes in and penetrates your heart. I think sometimes we, we have to, I know in my own life, I'm a driven person with checklists and I love to get all my agenda items done for the day. But for my relationship with the Lord, I came into a season, because I, I, I would do the reading plans and the checklist, and I was like driven to do this thing and my task had to be done. And then when it was done, guess what? It was done and now I can move on. The Lord showed me several years ago, at least in my life, maybe you want to try it myself, to best sharpen this sword, the best to keep it, double-edged, I had to slow down. Like none of you are calling me to make sure I'm keeping up on my reading list. I've never gotten a call. Please don't do it either because I don't have one. <laughs> so the Lord will, will, will direct me to a book of the Bible. Like I've been in Deuteronomy and I'm just going over and over again. It has nothing to do, well, there's been a few correlations, but it really doesn't have a lot to do with what I'm preaching on right now. It's my own personal time. So in this, he's been correcting me and training me on how to be a better parent. He's teaching me how to stand in the gap for other people. He's talking me not, not, not as a pastor to rid this church of sin, but even in my own life. When you see some of the violent acts against the sinful ones in Deuteronomy, his word is cutting me deep in my own personal life. And it's not because it's on a checklist. My encouragement to you is this, slow down and let this thing cut you deep. Quit being afraid of it. Quit being nervous of what the Holy Spirit's gonna tell you. 
and allow this to speak to you. Allow the Holy Spirit to build a relationship as if you are reading love letters from the Father, instructional letters from the Father. Right? If you were away, if you were away from your spouse, if you're married, and you couldn't talk to her face to face, though you can through the Holy Spirit, and you had a letter, you would continue to read and read and read this. So I, I do, I feel like we, we read this as a discipline, as a habit, but it doesn't cut us. If we would truly let what the word says, like a double-edged sword penetrating to even divide the soul and the spirit, there are so many different views theologically of what that means. One picture that I can take is this though. When something is divided and it stands alone, if this thing cuts us that deep, dividing even the soul and spirit, the implication is, is that it penetrates deep into your life. One of the things that came across my mind though, when the soul and the spirit are separated, we will see what thoughts are of the flesh and what thoughts are of the spirit. There's no more mixing. There's a separation. There's an identification that the Lord can speak through his word powerfully to cut you deep. So my encouragement is let it do what its job is. Let it be a double-edged sword in your life. Amen? In Psalm 119, 105, it says, the Lord or the word is a lamp for my feet and a light on my path. I think Star Wars actually had it right. (laughs) Go ahead, Randy, you can shut it off. So, not only is the word a sword, the word is also a light. This is what I love, because when you're in a dark season in your life and the enemy's coming, you've been given a sword to be able to go ahead and thrust that right back in him by using the word of God but it also shows you your very next step, right? So as the word is a sword, it's double-edged, it's cutting you deep in a good way, it's cutting the enemy off from his attack, it's also showing you, this is my very next step, this is my very next step. So we don't have to wonder where to go in a dark season, we don't have to wonder what's going on, we've been given a sword and a light all in one. That's a pretty amazing reality if you think about it. Thanks, Randy. Thanks, Levi, for the lightsaber. By the way, Eric, I forgot to ask you, right after service, can you take those off? (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Little kids coming up. Oh, look at that. In Psalm 119, verse 11, it says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. What is the enemy trying to do? He's trying to still kill and destroy. He's trying to derail your life. He's trying to allow you to live a lifestyle that's just a little bit tainted with sin until it leads to spiritual death. How do we avoid that? We hide his word in our heart. So the Holy Spirit has a whole lot to work with when he's speaking to us. That's the danger. If you don't know his word and the Holy Spirit's, you spend a lot of time in worship and just listening to the spirit, but you don't know the word, sometimes you'll get confused. The enemy will come in, he'll tell you something that's not biblical. And now you'll think, oh yeah, I'm walking this thing out. You need to know your word. You have to know your word. So when the voice of God speaks, you have something to ground it in right? Seriously, if somebody speaks over you prophetically as a prophetic word, you can say, this is wonderful. This is awesome. If you don't know your word and you don't have a foundation to ground it to, you can get off path. It's important to be in this. It's important to let it speak to you. I want to share just a few ways that the enemy will use, will use his attack to attack 
the integrity of this word in your life. The first way I believe is shame. So the devil wants you to believe, based on what culture is saying, that you're narrow-minded, you're judgmental, you're a bigot, and you're intolerant because you believe this is the final authority for your life. So he'll bring people into your life or he'll show you people on TV. They seem like nice people and they're, you know, they're kind and they give to different, different charities and all this kind of stuff, but they're living in a way that's not according to this word. So why do you disagree with me? Why are you trying to correct me? This and this and this. And what happens is the enemy will try to bring shame on you because he's saying you're narrow-minded. This can't be the only way. He's trying to abuse or take advantage of the integrity of this word. You're not narrow-minded. You're not a bigot. It's very clear how to be right with God. It's written in here. It's very clear how to understand your sonship or your daughtership under God. It's all written in here. So we don't have to be confused and feel shame. The second way is distraction. He gets you to be distracted out of God's will for your life by confusing you. So you read something in the Old Testament. You're like, wow, like God's having people kill other people and like all these wars. What in the world is this about? So if you don't put yourself in friendship, in relationship with other people who are further along than you, or if you don't surround yourself by good, solid resources, the enemy, even though you're in the word, can try to distract you by confusing you. And if you can stay confused and now you start to question this word and you start to question the God of this word, you'll worship him differently, right? Ultimately, what did the enemy want? Satan wanted worship. So if he's not gonna get your worship, he's at least gonna try to steal you from worshiping the Lord. So if he can get you distracted in this word, you'll worship him differently. And the enemy will win on that front. Another one is counterfeit teaching. So what he'll do, the enemy will use scripture even quote it to you through people that are on TV or people that, that you know with a slight mix of error. Sometimes it's a severe mix and they're actually a false teacher. Sometimes it's just a slight mix. So you have to be careful. Listen, I listen to other pastors. I listen to podcasts. I read books by other pastors, all that kind of stuff. I'm just telling you, will you please be careful? Like when I first listen to a message by somebody I've never listened to, or if I read a book by somebody that I, that I have no experience with, the first few messages or the first few chapters of the book, I'm not really like receiving it in my heart. I'm evaluating, is this person preaching what I believe to be true in the Bible? So it's not you get, a, you get a link from a friend and you just listen and now you open your soul and your spirit up just to receive everything. Evaluate him or her according to his word. So there's great resources out there, but don't be deceived. All right, do your homework. And don't do your homework by Googling the person's name and then trusting somebody else you don't know based on their opinions. Wow, well, I don't know this person. You don't know the person that wrote what you don't know about that person that you're reading about. Investigate, listen, read, talk to other trusted friends. There's great resources out there, but be careful. The last one that, that I want to talk about today briefly is an imbalance of truth. So what happens is the devil's going to try to use God's word to get you to overemphasize one truth over another until you come into imbalance. And what happens is a lot of times Christians will become so strong about this fresh revelation that they have that they'll actually criticize and judge other Christians for not having that. 
So they come into this revelation, they're set free. Somebody else is living over here and maybe they just don't have that revelation yet. A lot of times you can actually begin to act like a Pharisee toward another Christian. So what happens is this. Another, another part of listening to public ministers, again, there's great ones out there. But what I have noticed is the Lord has placed people in you know, the prophetic or very good teaching ministries or apostolic ministries in public realm And they are called by God to emphasize one area of ministry, to build the body of Christ up in one lane. So if we see different lanes of learning in the Christian faith, all going the same direction, I've noticed that a lot that are quite popular on TV, podcasts, they run really strong in one lane. So if you follow them and only them and not receive insight and wisdom from other ministries or or here at the church through groups and so on, you can begin to think that that truth is greater than another truth. So I've seen it down, and, and, then, and then you can actually operate in error. So I think it was just a couple hundred years ago, self, immediate salvation was a revelation. Like they used to have to contemplate it for several days. You'd go into the pastor's office, they'd walk you through this process. And there was this revelation, like right now, I can give my life to Jesus. So that's a huge revelation for the church, right? Grace by faith, salvation by faith immediately. But what it has done is it is also, the imbalance of that is you can raise your hand and repeat a prayer from the last pew and walk out of here and think you're going to heaven. That's an imbalance of truth. Are you following me? You're saying, yes, salvation can happen right now, but then it can get abused by an imbalance. Another area is holiness. If you've walked through the holiness movement, there's a revelation of the holiness of God being fleshed out in a believer's life that we can walk a holy, dedicated, committed life. The imbalance of that is no movies, no music, no makeup, no jewelry, pretty much no fun. No dancing, don't laugh in church, don't have, right? There's a truth in holiness. The imbalance of that is like no fun. Don't celebrate anything, don't even be happy about Jesus, just be holy. So there's an imbalance. You camp out just in that camp and you walk in imbalance. Not so, so long ago, There's a revelation that came at least through the American church of healing, God's will to heal. That's a wonderful revelation. It's still for today. He wants to do it. It should be much more active in our churches than it is. The imbalance of that is if somebody's not getting healed, then God's obviously not moving. Or if you're not getting healed, you don't have enough faith. No, that's not true, right? So you're camping out and healing, but now you become unbalanced or imbalanced toward the people who aren't receiving it. The last one is grace. Over the last probably 10 or 15 years, there's been such a great revelation to the church of God's grace, his adoption, our sonship. We're accepted, we're loved. He's not mad at us. He's not disappointed in us. Those are all great revelations. However, even the finished work of Christ. However, if you only camp out in that, you leave no room for the Holy Spirit to come and correct your life. So now there's like no standard of holiness. It's all grace. I'll live pretty much how I want to and his grace is just gonna cover it. That's not true either. So what the enemy is gonna try to do, he'll tell you something good and then you'll focus only on that. You won't listen to other counsel that's found in his word and you'll walk an imbalanced life. Each one of these cases, the word of God, the sword of spirit has been given. I wanna show you one example out of Jesus's life, of how he uh, attacked back at the enemy when the enemy attacked him, what he did, and how we can do the same. 
In Luke chapter four, verse one, this is right after Jesus was water baptized. It says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, led, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. Like those two verses go by so fast, but you, if you sat and like contemplated this, Jesus is coming off of a spiritual high, if you will, right? He's baptized for, to, so we can fulfill right, so he can fulfill righteousness, so we can follow his plan. Now it says he's full of the Holy Spirit going out. I believe that there is a key in that. If you want to beat the enemy, if you want to have victory through his word, being full of the Holy Spirit is really important. It's really important. He spent enough time with the Father and he knew the Old Testament, as we would call it, word enough in his heart that he would understand when the enemy was attacking and how he could attack right back. So you can't, you can't use this word like a genie bottle. You can't put it away, never look at it, never meditate on it, not let it penetrate your heart. And then when the day of evil comes, oh my goodness, I haven't touched my sword for like 30 years. Oh, I have to go over and you start brushing it off and you're looking in your, looking in your concordance and you're looking for this and, you, and then you speak a word and nothing happens. There's no faith attached to it. There's no spirit attached to it. You're like trying to rub the genie bottle so he comes out to give you your wish. That's not how this works. That's not how this works. He's called us into a relationship. This book brings us into greater revelation greater relationship with the author. That's the purpose of this. So the more we can read this, the more we can let the Holy Spirit speak to us, he fills us more and more. So that when the day of evil comes, when the day of temptation comes, we'll be able to respond as Jesus did. Even in the midst of a fast, even in the midst of being hungry and weak. And the devil will come like that. We see it in Elijah's life, even Jesus. Water baptism, full of the Holy Spirit, goes right into a 40-day fast. And the enemy's after him, after him, after him. So let's say, be aware of this. When you see a great victory, you have a great time rock maybe on a Wednesday night, or if you have you know, something happens at work or whatever, when you have that great victory, don't relax your spirit in those, those days to come. I'm not saying like be all paranoid, not at all. I'm just saying, don't, don't like sit back and say, okay, everything is great now. Be aware that the enemy will try to attack right out. He tries to blindside you with things. So be full of the Holy Spirit and remain full of the Holy Spirit. Stay in your word. So it says here in verse uh, three, it says, the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. He doesn't even, he doesn't even continue, but he li we live on what? The words that come forth from the mouth of the Lord, which we also have documented. So this here, this is what a lot of theologians would believe is a temptation in the lust of the flesh. Even in 1 John 2, 16, it says, everything in the world, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life. They don't come from the Father, they come from the world. Who's the prince of this world? The devil. So what's happening is he's tempting us in these areas of the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. So most theologians, they believe this is a temptation of the lust of the flesh. He's saying, I'm hungry, I'm fasting right now. I'm starving potentially. And he's saying, do this, Jesus. You can eat right now. Now, how does Jesus, how does he respond? Does he argue with the devil? Does he like talk to him? Does he have conversation? No, he speaks 
the word of God. You might say, well, what does that mean? Well, it's Deuteronomy 8.3. There weren't verses and chapters and they memorized these whole portions of scripture. So he's not saying, well, devil, in Deuteronomy chapter eight, verse three. No, he knew God's word in his heart already. And I want you to, this is not like some supernatural download that because he was the son of God, he just knew it all. The Bible says that he grew in wisdom. He grew, he learned this. And he spent a lot of time with the father. So he's tempted by the enemy and he, come, he cuts right back at the enemy with the word of God. Second temptation is the lust of the eyes. His eyes could see everything that the enemy wanted to give him, that the devil himself said that he would give him if he would only receive worship. It says this in verse five. The devil led him to a high place and showed him in, in an instant all of the kingdoms of the world. So we have to trust Jesus was able to see from this high place all of these different nations. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me. When was it given to him? All the way back at the garden. Now Jesus is here to restore the kingdom, right? But not not the devil's way. It says, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus, probably quite hungry by now, says, it is written. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Again, when somebody comes at you in in person, in flesh, and they say something that's opposing to you, we wanna get this thing out and we wanna like do like little battles like this, right? We wanna go against them. We wanna argue with them. We wanna try to compare notes. We wanna debate all this stuff. Jesus does not do that with the enemy. He doesn't say, well, Devil, why would you do that? I'm going to do it this way. I'm going to shed blood and this, and I came back. I'm going to take the keys, and I'm going to do that. We're going to send believers. Not at all. Not at all. We spend too much time arguing with him in our minds. Put the helmet on, get the, the sword out, and stab him already. Quit spending time arguing with him. Declare. Find a verse and declare the word. Right? Even if you're not in this regularly enough now, get in it. Ask the Lord. If, the, if, you, if you don't even understand how to listen to the Lord, call me. I'll give you a book to start with. And get in and just stay in there and read. I, I've encouraged several people I've worked with recently, is don't even worry about an entire chapter right now. Most of our Bibles have headings in them. Just read heading to heading. And stay on there for a week if you need to. Just keep reading those verses, asking the Lord what it means. We've given resources several weeks back about trusted websites that will take you to commentators that we trust, that will show you the words in the original Greek and Hebrew, resources that we trust. So don't just Google, what does this mean? Right, go to things. We have resources that we can supply to you. However, I will tell you one thing on the internet that can be very helpful and does not bring man's opinion into it. If you go into your Google, if you go, or if you go into the internet and you say, Bible verses about, let's say you're just being attacked on finances. You say Bible verses about finances. Those first few options will most likely be a collection of Bible verses, nobody's opinion, no paragraphs of people that you don't know if you can trust or not, just uh, lists of verses. It's like the old days uh, concordance. Remember the Strong's concordance? They were like this thick and flip through. Now you can just Google it. 
So I'm saying don't read other people's opinions right away online, but you can still find scriptures, start getting these things in your heart until you actually believe them to be true, right? It's not, again, it's not a genie bottle. Get them in your heart till you believe that they actually apply to your life and then use them out of your mouth. How did Jesus, or how did, how did the Father create in the beginning? He spoke, he spoke, he spoke. He made declarations, he made decrees. The same happens here. Things happen in the kingdom when we speak. So the Holy Spirit lives in us, he's given us his word, but you can't just think thoughts. Speak, the devil's not in your head. You have to speak against what he's tempting you by the truth. That's how you resist him. You don't resist by like, please go away, please go away, please go away. <laughs> Speak out loud the word of God and you'll see the power of it come to life. So when he says, worship the Lord your God and serve him only, he's referencing Deuteronomy 6, 13. It's found in his word and that's what Jesus uses. The last one was the temptation of the pride of life. Isabella, you can come up at this time. It's taking life into your own hands. It's saying, I can do this. And then you're, you're basically testing God in a very unhealthy, unbiblical way. So it says in verse nine, the devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. It says, if you are the son of God, right? If you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. I remember Pastor Volpe years ago talking about a man, you might remember this, Talking about a man that, that felt that the Holy Spirit told him, to, he was like learning a lesson on how to be led by the Spirit, that he told him to close his eyes while he's driving and take his hand off the wheel. Do you remember this? So he closed his eyes and the guy wrecks at the next curb. I told, I told my kids before an example, God doesn't save stupid. Don't do something stupid. And you call it the Holy Spirit. Well, God's telling me to just jump off this and he's gonna save me supernaturally. I wouldn't test God that way in any, in any form of the word, right? So the Holy Spirit's telling you to do something, line it up with this word. Talk to people. I'm confused. I don't find it in the Bible and this and this and that. Find it in here. Find something that can correlate with it. You could tell this is the Holy Spirit. So it says, um, so Jesus responds in verse 10, it is written, he will command, oh, no, 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 I'm sorry. This is still the devil, sorry. The devil's still tempting him. He's saying, throw yourself down from here for it is written. Now he is actually, the devil is quoting scripture here. This is interesting. This is why you have to understand what he's telling, what he's tempting you to do is according to him because he's, what he's using is scripture out of context. From Psalm 91, verse 11 and 12, this is where this comes from. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. This is in reference to you moving forward in the kingdom, this Old Testament version. It's making progress with the Lord. It's serving the Lord with all of your mind, soul, strength. and it's, it's walking with him. The enemy comes, he'll come and lift you up. Not do something stupid and God will show up and lift you up. It's a big difference. So Jesus' answer to this is this. It comes from Deuteronomy 6.16. Do not put the Lord God to the test. It says, when the devil had finished all of his tempting, he left until an opportune time. So there's evidence here that Jesus 
submitted himself to the Father by the time that he spent with him. There's evidence that Jesus resisted the enemy by using the written word in spoken format, right? So he was speaking it in authority, what was already written. And there's evidence that the enemy fleed. So we see James coming out in this, James 4, 7, that that verse about submitting yourself, resisting the enemy. I want you to see this. Jesus did not fight this battle as Messiah. He fought this battle as man, full of the Holy Spirit, consumed by the word of God. It's an example of how we can fight. Why don't you stand at this time? I want to pray over you uh, just two specific things today. In Psalm 119, it says, because I love your commands more than gold, more than pure gold, and because I consider all your precepts right, I hate every wrong path. So the precursor is I love your commands. I love your precepts. I love what you have written for my life. And because of that, I hate everything that would be wrong. It says, your statutes are wonderful. Therefore, I obey them. The unfolding of your words give light. It gives understanding to the simple. He goes on to say, I open my mouth and pant, longing for your commands. Turn to me and have mercy on me, as you always do to those who love your name. Direct my footsteps according to your word. Let no sin roll over me. Redeem me from the oppression of men that I may obey your precepts. This entire portion is saying, the psalmist is saying, I'm hungry for your word. He's saying, I'm opening my mouth and I'm panting for your commands. My question is, do you have that type of hunger for your word? Do you wake up and think, I, I have to get into the word before I start my day, before I do my next step. I want this thing to speak to me through the Holy Spirit. That's the type of hunger that, that, that the Lord wants to stir up in your heart. Hunger to eat of his word and to drink of who he is, the true living water. In Ephesians chapter one, starting at verse 17, it says, I keep asking the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious father, that he may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Where does that come from? The Holy Spirit does a work in your life so that when you read this word, you gain wisdom from it and there's revelation. Revelation is the opening of the eyes. There's new revelation from an ancient book of the word of God. He says, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Why? In order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. It says that power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms far above all role and authority, power and dominion and every title that can ever be given. All of your inheritance, all of the spiritual riches that you have, everything that you have in the kingdom, Paul wants you to know about, okay? So he wants you to be aware of what is yours by your rightful place as a child of God. And Paul's saying, he's praying for the church in Ephesus 
that they would receive a spirit of wisdom and revelation. And then he goes on to say that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened, opened up. So if your eyes are not enlightened to this word, if you're not asking the Holy Spirit to give you wisdom and revelation as you read this word, then you don't know what's a part of this covenant. You don't know what your riches are. You don't know what your inheritance is. And I guarantee if you're not familiar with those things, when attack comes, you're not gonna have the faith to actually believe this to be true. So Father, we pray even right now, if you don't mind, just put your hand over your heart. Father, we thank you for placing a sword in our hands. We thank you, Father, that this sword is sharper than a double-edged natural sword, that it's used to cut us deeply. Father, today we thank you so much that you have clearly written from before the beginning of time all the way through into the rest of eternity. You've clearly written how this is playing out. We thank you that you've written the terms of your covenant, the terms of your relationship, and what we have as children of God. And Father, today, I pray no matter where every person is in this room, that you would stir up in us a hunger for your word. God, I ask you for more of it for myself. You'd stir it up, Lord. Stir it up, Lord. Stir up a hunger. Stir up an appetite, God, that I don't want to move forward until I read from your word, that I receive instruction from your word, correction from your word, rebuking, if necessary, from your word, and training from your word. I pray, God, that you would birth this appetite in every single one of us, a hunger and a desire so that when our mouth opens, we pant for your word, that we want more of it in our lives. Father, right now, because it says it in your word, because Paul prayed for it, we take Paul's prayers 2,000 years from then, and we pray the same prayer, that you would give us a spirit of wisdom and you would give us a spirit of revelation and that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened. Father, I pray that you'd position our hearts in such a way that every time we open up that book, even if it's the book of Numbers, and we open this up, we would have an aha moment every single time that we'd say, oh, I haven't seen that before. I wanna dig more. I wanna eat upon the word more. I wanna digest more. Father, I pray you'd give us that every time we open your word, the aha moment of who you are based on what you've written. We trust today, God, that we need a spirit of wisdom, spirit of revelation, that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened. So we pray that you'd do that, even in the quietness of this moment. We take time and ask you. And Father, we thank you that your word says that when we pray according to your will, you listen. And we can believe that we have what we've asked for. So we absolutely know this is according to your will for us to have a greater hunger, a greater understanding, and a greater revelation of your word. Sharpen our swords, Heavenly Father, that we would be able to use, that you'd use it in the, in the training of our life and we'd be able to use it against the enemy until he flees. Father, we ask for your blessing, your favor, your protection to go upon us until we meet again. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening. 
For more information, check us out at centralconnect.org.